This is They Create Worlds, episode 72, The Mysteries of Broderbund. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We now have to go into the mysteries of Brotoboon. That time when they just liked desktop publishing software and really didn't care about games anymore. <laughs> well, I don't think it's fair to say that they didn't care about games at all anymore. In fact, in, through the entire rest of Brotoboon's history, they did earnestly try to remain active in the games market, and they did, as we'll see, have some significant hits in that area. But it's certainly true that after 1984, the other facets that the company was getting involved in were more successful on the whole and were the areas that the company ended up growing in the most and ended up most comfortable in, which is a phenomenon that we'll, of course, be working our way through in this episode. That is true. They did come out with some of our most famous hits that they've done, Mist being one of them. Just kind of interesting to see how a video game company, one that was founded on video games, just all of a sudden transitioned into desktop, evergreen, I'm putting out new versions of pretty pictures or <laughs> desktop publishing or whatever it is. Well, it could certainly look that way. I mean, when I spoke to Doug Carlston, one of the things he said is that, you know, when people look back at Broderbund, they tend to pay the most attention to what they were interested in about Broderbund. So if you're someone that's coming in from a games background, you remember the game stuff. If you're someone that was into making your own greeting cards and banners, you tend to remember Print Shop. If you were someone that grew up with Broderbund in the schools, maybe it's the education stuff you remember more. So it's natural for us to look back at especially the very early days of Broderbund and say, well, that's a game company. There's no doubt that the bigger portion of their revenue was coming from games. As I said at the very end of the previous episode, through 1984, game software was always the largest contributor to revenue. Doug Carlston always wanted to be more than that. Doug Carlston was never interested in just being a game company. So the seeds were being planted even in the very early days. The very first successful non-game software that they did was actually in 1981, and it was a piece of software called Payroll, which does exactly what it sounds like. It helps one keep track of payroll. There was programming in there that dealt with individual state laws and that kind of thing as well. So it wasn't just that it was a spreadsheet like uh, VisiCalc or something that was just helping you keep track of ledgers like an accountant. I mean, it was that, but it was also custom-tailored specifically for the task of keeping a payroll. Uh, I've talked to Broderboon's uh, CEO and later president, Bill McDonough, and uh, he even said that they used that program internally for years <laughs> to do their own payroll stuff. Now, that was not created within Broderboom. It was submitted. We, of course, talked at length last time how basically everything they did in the early days was this acquisition model where people are bringing software to them. Still, that was a fairly significant hit for the company in 1981, even if games were, were still the biggest part. If there's a place where you would really point to the start of their move into these other areas, though, 
it would be with the word processor program Bank Street Writer. Are you familiar with that one? No, I've never heard of that until just now. <laughs> we had it on our uh, totally legitimate and not in any way a pirated clone of the Apple II that <laughs> I had growing up. Uh, well, I mean, when I had one, I was very young. I didn't have it growing up. We got rid of that by the time I was four or five. But, you know, in the early days, before kind of WordStar and WordPerfect cemented their place in the word processing market, obviously later eclipsed by Word, you had a lot of applications that were kind of competing in that space because that very quickly, just like spreadsheets, was identified as an area where something can be done with a microcomputer that's useful in a business setting that isn't just moving little dots around the screen or playing games or whatever. Bank Street Writer was created at Bank Street College in Boston. That's where the name comes from. That's actually a college. They went to Scholastic to sell it as an educational software. I mean, it was made by a college, so it was kind of targeted at a more educational market. But they also wanted to release it generally as well to home computer users. They didn't just want to go into the education market. So they kind of took a look at what all of the companies were that were in that space, just doing home computer software of any kind. Broderbund being one of the big ones which they certainly were, was one of the companies that was on their radar. The way Doug Carlson tells the story, I didn't talk about this with him, but uh, he did a, a oral history of the Computer History Museum. The way he tells the story is he doesn't think that the Bank Street Rider people went out to the West Coast with the intention of going with Broderbund. After all, payroll aside, Broderbund was still very much a game company at this point. But it's that Carlston effect. It's that lack of pretense, the intelligence, the uh, congeniality, kind of this Midwestern wholesome honesty combined with real intelligence behind it. I mean, as we may recall, both Carlston brothers are, are Yaleys. You know, these guys have a, a neuron or two uh, floating around up there. That combination is what helped them win the StarCraft business that, of course, launched their game business. And uh, in Doug's opinion, it's what allowed them to win this word processor business. He says that apparently, this is just from his side of the story, not the Bank Street Rider side, but apparently the company they went to beforehand on this kind of circuit just kind of completely blew them off in a very arrogant manner. So then when they came to Broderbund and saw these, uh, you know, gosh darn nice, unpretentious people that were willing to talk to him and seemed interested and were listening, uh, you know, they were just kind of won over. So Broderboon got the rights to uh, do Bank Street Rider outside of the educational scene. That was really their first evergreen product. I mean, placed alongside your Carmen Sandiego's and your print shops that we're going to be talking about here in, in just a moment, it wasn't as big as that. It was a fairly big deal on the Apple II, though I think some of that was, of course, the education market that Broderbund did not have access to. I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's so long ago, I'm pretty sure that back in the 80s when I was doing computer stuff in school, I'm pretty sure that the Apple IIs that we were using, and we're talking the mid-1980s here, I'm pretty sure those had Bank Street Rider on them. That was Scholastic doing that. That was, you know, the educational side of it. So not all of that was a benefit that Broderbund reaped. And then, of course, you did have WordStar, you had WordPerfect. I mean, there were other programs that were destined to be the word processor programs. But still, I mean, they put it out for years, and it was the first time that they really had a product where they could say, okay, 
I have something that is eminently useful. I have something that everyone, no matter their sophistication level, whether they're a hardcore computer programmer or a businessman or someone just messing around with their computer at home that doesn't know much about them but has heard about these crazy new microcomputer things, it's something all of them could relate to and understand and find useful. So this is something where if you refresh it, keep it updated with new features, fix bugs, etc., you can sell this year to year to year. I think this is probably the product that really put that concept into the Carlston's minds for the first time. So it seems that they really did from the very beginning, even though we didn't talk about this last time, to have a bent toward being a holistic software company, not just a video game company, but a holistic one where we will take any kind of software and we will entertain the prospect of doing any kind of software. And really, their first one was payroll that really... Mm -hmm worked out fantastically well for them. And then further on with Bank Street Rider, when they came to them and said, hey, we got this awesome software here. We think it'll work out good. These other people over here are a bunch of mindless jerks who will be the first up against the wall when the revolution <laughs> comes. But you guys, you're nice. You treated us with respect, listened to our proposal, and are willing to go with us. We're willing to go with you. Exactly. There's a lot of terms that get thrown around. We didn't really talk about this, so this is as good a place as any to, to talk about it. There are a lot of terms thrown around in the very early days of home computing. Nowadays, when we talk about home computing with a traditional setup of monitor, keyboards, mice, all of that, we just call them PCs because IBM and the clone makers just kind of won that over. Back in the day, there were a lot of different names. I mean, they were called microcomputers sometimes, and that's basically just because you already had the mini computer that was considered a smaller and cheaper and more accessible computer in a business or academic setting than a big mainframe. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, if you have many and you're getting smaller, you have micro. They did call them personal computers sometimes, and this is not the IBM PC. I mean, when IBM launched the IBM personal computer, they kind of took ownership of that term. And then there's this concept of home computers. And we did talk about home computers some in the context of the crash in that time period. So the 82, 83 time period. One thing that some people, I think, are maybe not as clear on is that the concept of a home computer, that is something that an average person, not an enthusiast, but an average person. We're enthusiasts. That's right. <laughs> would use in the home or that companies hoped would use in the home, because I'm not saying adoption was big from the beginning, didn't really start until about 1979. You had the Trinity in 1977, which, of course, we did a, a whole episode on. Commodore PET, TRS-80, Apple II. These computers are kind of the first ready-to-go-outside-the-box personal computers, but they were not targeted at the quote-unquote home user. They were targeted at businesses, and they were targeted at hobbyists. And you see, the hobbyist market was considered something different from the home market. Obviously, hobbyists are using their computers in the home, but they're the super-dedicated type of guy. They're actually a more desirable clientele because not only are they buying the computers for themselves, they're also the one that other people are coming to and going, hey, I'm interested in learning about a computer. I want to understand how a computer works and how it can work for me in the home and the business. 
can you show me what the options are? And the guy'd go, well, sure. Come over here. I've been playing with X, Y, and Z. This one is great at doing this. This one's great at doing that. And this other one, nothing but problems. Stay away from it. (laughs) Sure. When you're talking about the very early software, I'm talking about the software being offered in the late 70s and the very, very beginning of the 1980s. You are talking about software that is either being marketed towards the business user that is a whole nother ball of wax that demands something of a different caliber in terms of what it can do, in terms of its stability, in terms of the promised update cycle, et cetera, because it's got to be something that's very reliable in a business setting. Yeah, you need something that's going to just work and has an intuitive enough interface that I can take Jane from accounting, set Jane in front of it and go figure out how this works. Or Bob, the clerk, and be, okay, I need you to scan things going in and out. Well, how do I do that? Well, here's a scanner, and here's a little program, (laughs) and you need to scan and make sure this box is filled, then type in their name here and here, and press submit. Right. Then you had the enthusiast crowd. In the enthusiast crowd, the hobbyist crowd is what they called them, but enthusiast and hobbyist are really synonyms in this case. They just want to play with the computer. They're not buying a computer because it's useful. They're not buying the computer because they think they can store their recipes on it or that they can do their taxes on it or any of this. They are buying a computer because they just want to play with it. Playing could mean playing games or it could just mean writing simple programs just for fun. You know, if I take this computer here and plug it into these lights there, it goes blinky, 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 and it kind of looks like it goes along with this song that I'm playing on this stereo here. But if I take that stereo over here and wire it into this computer port here, when I flip the switch, it goes on in sync, but it's only off by half a second. So I need to put this little delay resistor in there so it gets half a second delay and then somehow bypasses it. And yeah, this gets complicated (laughs) quickly. Right. So for these very early companies like Broderbund, like online systems, which became Sierra, like Sirius Software, there wasn't much point... In the very beginning, I'm talking 78, 79, 80, the very beginning, there really wasn't a point to offering what we would now call productivity software, software that is not meant for the business user, is meant for the personal user, but is meant to be useful, is meant to facilitate some kind of activity. There wasn't a point in releasing that kind of software because the computer makers, the people that were putting out these machines and marketing these machines, they weren't pricing their computers for the home user. They were not advertising, really, their computer for the home user. I mean, sure, they do some half-hearted advertising because you want to sell to as big a market as possible. But it really wasn't the focus. The focus was get it into businesses and get it into the hands of the geeks, the computer geeks. Broderbund really, and Doug Carlston, really was, according to Bill and according to other people and according to Doug himself, really was interested in the full kind of spectrum of computer software from the very beginning. But you don't see them getting really heavily involved in it until 1982, Bank Street Rider, 1984, Print Shop, Because that's when the market appeared. So, of course, they were a game company early. 
there's nothing else they can sell. I mean, they're not a business company. They're not geared towards businesses. You need a lot more staff for that, quite frankly, because even in a microcomputer environment, even when you're not programming in a mainframe environment, you kind of need that IBM style sea of programmers because you just have to keep everything updated and compatible constantly or a business is going to drop you. So, I mean, they couldn't really do the business market. They don't have the people for that. They're on an acquisitions model. And there is nobody to do productivity software with. So, uh, of course, in the beginning, they were a game company. That's the market. They were interested in getting beyond that. And when the market began to evolve, when other companies started coming in, when prices of certain things started coming down, and when killer applications in the business world, like VisiCalc, got ordinary people thinking about applications for this stuff, even in their own homes, even outside of the business community, that was the moment to strike if you wanted to be a company that was involved in a larger segment of the market than just games. And because Broderbund, because the Carlstons really were interested in going there from the beginning, they were ready to pounce on those opportunities when they finally became available. And so that's why you get things like Bank Street Rider and, of course, the biggest of them all, Print Shop. Okay, so they started acquiring the market evolved. And they started acquiring these evergreen products and proceeded on. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the game scene doesn't just go, well, we're done. <laughs> no, not at all. They keep going on the games. But a funny kind of thing happens. We talked about how they're on an acquisitions model. And we've talked about, at the same time, though, how they were starting to have some staff that were programmers or animators or artists. Some of these are people that we talked about specifically in the context of the Carmen Sandiego episode, like Lauren Elliott, Gene Portwood, Dane Bigham. These guys that were on staff to provide project management, they were project managers. They weren't producers because they weren't looking at budgets. They weren't looking at release windows. They weren't looking at any of that stuff. They were truly project managers, which was just, this is the project you're doing. I'm making sure that you know what you're doing and that you have the resources you need (laughs) kind of deal. They were serving as project managers. They were serving as kind of assistants if somebody needed extra help. And they were serving as porters of software because, of course, as we talked about before, the software artist, the person making the program, is interested in making a cool game and then is interested in making the next cool game. He's not interested in taking his cool game and then spending another six months working on it, porting it to every other computer system out there. So that kind of stuff tends to come in-house. They're bringing staff in-house to do this other stuff. But once you have that staff there and once you have talented people there, as people like Gene Portwood, former Disney animator, or Lauren Elliott, or Dane Bigham are, they're naturally going to want to do some stuff themselves, too. It just so happened that the internal staff kind of evolved in the direction of doing this productivity stuff or doing this educational stuff. I mean, we won't go into the story of Carmen Sandiego again because we did a whole episode on that. But if we're going big picture, the interesting thing is it was created by the in-house talent. These guys that had been brought in one by one to fulfill other roles that weren't being primary game producers came together to do this Carmen Sandiego game. It wasn't built specifically with the educational market in mind, 
But because, as we discussed in that Carmen Sandiego episode, because teachers responded to it so well, it ended up becoming the start of an educational line where you're marketing directly to educators and marketing directly to schools and marketing directly to those companies that are doing the software bundles for schools, etc. So that was done internally, but it ended up not being a game product. It ended up being an educational product. So that was kind of an area where the internal staff was going. You have the example of print shop, which we absolutely have to stop and, and go into a little more detail on. Print shop was an interesting situation because what happened is there were these two guys, David Balsam and Marty Kahn. They had their own two-man development company called Pixelite, I think it was called. And they were working on this idea, just this fun little thing where it'd be like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could do more artistic things on the computer screen? Wouldn't it be nice if we could create these greeting card type things and banner type things on the computer screen? Now, just on the computer screen. Not we talking didn't about say printing. printing. We did not say printing. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just kind of have these fun things you could do on the screen, on the computer? Presumably, then you could save it to floppy and then you could take it over to your friend's house and put it up on their computer and be like, here, look, I made this birthday card for you. Happy birthday. But it's just, it's on the computer. Look, we can put it on the big television screen in all of its 22-inch glory. <laughs> At the same time they were doing this, Marty Kong got a job with Broderbund. He became one of these guys that was brought in as a programmer just to do porting, just to do this, just to do that. He specifically made sure when he was hired, uh, is my understanding, I mean, I haven't talked to him, but I don't know if it was specifically made sure or it just uh, it wasn't covered at all. But the important thing is, this program that they were working on through this, this other company was considered to be a separate thing. By joining Broderbund, he was not handing this over to Broderboon. They were hiring him as a programmer. They weren't hiring him because there was this thing. Of course, once he's on staff, he's going to show coworkers, management, whoever else. It's like, you know, we've got this program we're working on, me and my buddy, and we think this is kind of cool, and maybe you guys would be interested in publishing it because this is still Broderbund as acquirer, Broderboon in the acquisition mode. So the Carlstons were very interested in that, and I don't know who it was. I really don't. I wish there was a little more information out there on the development of the print shop. Obviously, it's not a, a game product at all, but it's just such a seminal product in computer software history. You know, it'd be interesting to know more about it. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, well, this is great, but wouldn't it be even greater if you could print out the results? You have to understand. Two things here. First of all, printer technology in the early 1980s was expensive. And finicky, and a pain in the butt, and it makes me cry. You did not have postscript. You did not have these universal printer font, printer formatting software suites. The same stuff that we had to go through back in my day with DOS games of IRQ hell of, oh, I need to move the video card over to slot two, set the IRQ to five, and then do a magic dance and maybe it'll work. You had to do that same kind of junk with the printer. Right, but we're not even just talking about that. Yeah, printers needed drivers and every printer is going to have different drivers and every printer is going to behave differently. 
So that's one side of the challenge. But you don't have universal fonts. This is pre-Mac. This is pre-Adobe PostScript. This is pre-all of this idea that you tell your computer, I'm printing in Times New Roman font, and then it prints on the printer in Times New Roman font, whether that printer is made by Epson or Canon or Hewlett Packard or whoever. It's not just the hardware driver problem. It's that if I have this text on the screen and these images, this clip art on the screen, is it really going to look like it does on the screen when I print it? Does the printer know that font? Does the printer understand that font? How does the printer lay out the page? What's in the middle of my page here, is that actually going to look like it's five steps to the right when I actually print it? I mean, there was no such thing as desktop publishing where you lay it out on the computer and then the computer software and the printer font software and everything, you know, work their voodoo behind the scenes. And what you see on your screen is what you get in the printing. Yeah, there's some interesting things with printing and how you try to translate what is on the screen to the printer. There's been a lot of steps in the last couple decades to try and make that easier. And arguably, we still do not have this right. Mm -hmm. And because there's just such a myriad of things there, you'd think it would be simple of, okay, well, why don't I just do whatever my size paper is, eight and a half by 11, we'll just say standard U.S. letter. Okay, we'll have the margins at half an inch all around. Fantastic. Now I just want the printer to go from left to right in the top left to the bottom right, going back and forth just like it draws a screen. Put a black dot here, put a black dot there, put a black dot here, there. And then eventually once it's done printing and just laying it all out, it'll just work. You'd think that would work, but no, it doesn't. Because there's these little inconsistencies with how the print head moves back and forth and how... You say where things are. You can sort of get something that looks like it there. And you can sort of see some of those effects on modern printers if you tell, say, a PDF file to print as an image versus mm -hmm. printing with the fonts and stuff. Yeah. You'll notice some little subtle differences. And you might not always get that with the same kind of thing. But there's inconsistencies. It comes down really to an accuracy issue. Mm -hmm. It's an entire rabbit hole that will make your head hurt if you decide to go down it. I will see if I can find something that will explain it at a broad level to throw in the show notes. I may or may not be able to find something. Right. But it's insane because this is something I have to actually deal with occasionally in my own work environment where we have to have a really high accuracy rate of point zero 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 hundred thousandths of an U.S. inch accuracy because our tolerances are really, really small. Absolutely. And this was even worse of a problem back then. Desktop publishing. I mean, you've used the term desktop publishing in, in regards to the print shop a few times, and it's not an inaccurate term. It definitely is a form of desktop publishing. But the concept of desktop publishing, what we call desktop publishing today, did not exist before the Macintosh computer. Yeah, you still had printing presses. Newspapers didn't put together everything in a nice little computer thing and it goes, oh, the text went over this limit and it just spills over in the next page. Yeah, that's okay. It was more, to a large extent, still doing with the whole, like, more sophisticated, but you got the, I got to typeset each mm -hmm. thing and then put ink on it and then that impresses a page. Not like the 1800s version of that, but a more modern industrialized version of that that's a lot quicker you still got to set up that thing, and that's a manual process at some point along the line. 
It's right. not a computer where I can set up the layout and then push the print button and then, ooh, newspaper. Well, right. But even in the context of doing printing on a computer, the idea that you can choose your font. You can change what the font is, make your own font. That did not exist, though, before the Macintosh, where you could just choose a font from a drop-down menu and just be like, this is the font I want, and then everything updates properly and your printer knows how to do it. There were you know, things like PostScript that I talked about were required, these kind of universal font softwares that could interface, that could be the middleman between your computer and your printer, and be like, okay, the computer is calling for this font printer. This is what that font looks like. You didn't have those middlemen. So to create something that allowed you to play around with text, play around with images, in these pre-Macintosh days, I mean, Print Shop was 84, and Macintosh came out in 84, desktop publishing didn't start until 85, and the stuff that made it really easy didn't come out for even a few years after that. This was not something that you could just do, and it was not something that was just easy. So when Print Shop came along and could do this, where you could make fancy letters, as in fancy letters of the alphabet, not... Fancy, like writing letters to mom. Fancy letters, different font styles, and could do images. And then you could arrange the screen however you wanted with all of this stuff to make your gift cards and banners. That's really the areas it was meant for, greeting cards and and banners. And then send that to your printer, and your printer would print it. I mean, that was practically voodoo. And especially the fact that you could do that in the home. Right. Printers were very, very expensive. It would cost more to buy a printer than it would to buy a computer. Often, and the things were slow, the early printers were called dot matrix printers. You had this ribbon, very much like a typewriter, an old style typewriter. And heaven help you if that thing dried out. (laughs) There really hadn't been a good application yet for people to want to go out and buy a printer. There was no real good reason to have a printer in your home unless you were taking some work home and needed to be able to print at home. But because they were expensive, and what could you do with them? They were so finicky. Print shop became that reason because you could do these banners and you could do these greeting cards. And, you know, they had a staff, an army of people that made sure that it was compatible with all the different printers out there. Not only was Print Shop sold to people just in computer stores, it was bundled with printers. You know, they would make deals. Broderbund could make deals with printer companies being like, hey, we got this program, Print Shop, and it does this really cool greeting card thing, and it will be something that will make people really want to use your printer. So maybe you should bundle our software with your printer. Because bundling, man, that is where the real money was. I mean, in this day and age of digital distribution and whatnot, I don't know that it is so much anymore. But back when you had physical software, it didn't matter what your software was. It didn't matter whether it was business software, productivity software, computer games. Bundling is where the real money was because those were guaranteed sales where a computer manufacturer or a printer manufacturer or a peripheral manufacturer would just say right up front, I'll take 250,000 copies to bundle with all my machines. And those were sales. Those were final sales. If the computer didn't end up selling with it or the printer didn't end up selling with it, that was the hardware manufacturer's problem. It wasn't the software guy's problem. So, I mean, bundling is where the real money was with physical media computer software. Print shop was something that they could 
bundle with printers. It became the killer app, so to speak, that really pushed the hardware. It and really was. for any kind of hardware that we had, especially with technology, you needed to have the killer app. For computers to really be popular in the business, you needed VisiCalc. Mm-hmm. VisiCalc was the killer software. Mm-hmm. For printers, it was obviously PrintShop. Mm-hmm. You can point to this getting back to video games here. On the VCS, the Atari, little old Atari over there, Base Invaders really pushed that hardware. Super Mario Brothers really pushed Nintendo. Mm -hmm. You always have, with a hardware, that seminal, really fantastic piece of software that people go, okay, I really want to play that. I'm buying that hardware. Breath of the Wild and the Switch. (laughs) Sure. Modern day equivalent. Exactly. So with Print Shop, because it was such a seminal program, because it was something that could really be a seller of a particular class of hardware, this was something that really lent itself to evergreenness even more than Bank Street Rider, because it's a graphical program. It's got clip art and whatnot. So first of all, there's the obvious thing. We can do expansions with new art. Definitely. And you can do newer, better art as the technology progresses. Every right. five years or so, well, no one wants to have that old 16 by 16 art. Have our new fancy 32 by 32 art. All the art pieces you love upgraded for you. That's right. These days you want clip art. You just go to Google Images and you search for something and you specify that you're only looking for clip art and you get a million results from the Internet. The print shop was Google Images before the Internet. We're talking about the time before the internet here, kids. <laughs> right. Back in my day. <laughs> or before the World Wide Web, uh, to, to put it more accurately. True. Before the World Wide Web and the internet became so ubiquitous like it did in the late 90s, we're talking the mid to late 80s here, early 90s. The only way you got art in order to put into something is you had to buy it. Mm-hmm. If it didn't come with it and you couldn't figure out some inventive way of Oh, yeah, if I rotate this 45 degrees and do this and the other thing and change the size and then pattern it like this, I can sort of fake this other thing. Right. You would go, okay, I want to do some desktop publishing. I've used the entire clip art options here. Let's go to the store. And then you see, oh, Joe Clip Art Bundle Land. <laughs> 700 <laughs> clip art for only $20. Take my money. That's right. And so, of course, right away, I mean, right away, Broderboon started doing those kind of expansion packs. And then, of course, you periodically update the software, you know, Print Shop 2.0, Print Shop 3.0. Just like any other productivity application, just like Word or just like operating systems like Windows. Every couple of years, you put out the new version with the new features. But then in between, the difference between it and something like Word or Windows is that in between the big updates, you can do all the expansion packs. It's a license to print money. So they have to bring in more people on staff to do that. Oh, yeah. You need to have artists brought in in order to make that clip Mm -hmm. art. You need to bring in marketers to go, okay, we're going to bundle this software and then maybe run some sort of promotion around this time of year where, hey, if you buy that printer, we'll give you the clip art bundles one and two at 50% off with the promise that you can have a credit of 10% off of clip art volume three. Right. So here's the strange thing that happened to Broderboond. They were getting a lot of staff in-house to do in-house stuff, but they were in the productivity area. 
They were in the education area. They were completely divorced from the games. Right. They weren't in the games area. They continued to pursue games through an acquisition model. And this is true basically throughout the entire history of the company up to the point that it was bought out in 1998. The game side of it stayed acquisition. So it naturally became less and less because as the decade wore on, as the 1980s wore on, and then, of course, as the 1990s, even after that wore on, games became more and more of a team effort. It used to be that you just had one person that was both programmer and designer. Then, as the graphics got a little better, maybe you hired a couple of artists and a sound guy. Then as the games got bigger, you had to hire another couple of programmers in addition to your three or four artists and your sound guy. Then, well, these games are getting so sophisticated and things are so specialized. Why are we having our programmers also have to design the games? Why don't we just get the very best programmers we can find and have the designer role be separate? So teams are naturally, as this time goes on, growing and growing until, you know, they're maybe made up of a dozen or so people. Obviously, today they're made up of hundreds of people, but we're just talking about the, you know, the late 80s and and early 90s here. More and more game development is either coming in-house, where you're like, okay, this is getting way too much of a pain managing all of these teams spread all across the country that are all doing these individual games. We need to bring them in-house so that we can better manage across teams what our product line looks like. Or it's becoming more contract work where it's like, okay, we have some designers, producers, whatever on staff. We have some great ideas for games. And then we're going to find this studio that we know can make this game for us. The acquisition model where it's just like, hey, you guys working on something cool? If you are. Submit it to us, and we'll publish it for you if we like it. That model is really disappearing as the teams become bigger and as the products become more sophisticated. It's not that it ever goes away completely. I mean, there are independent studios. Even today, there aren't many of them, but there are a small number of AAA independent studios that go and make a cool game and and then go try to find someone to publish it or have a great idea for a game and pitch that game to a publisher, and then they come to an agreement on milestones and all of that, and do it. But as time goes on, it's more and more either bring it in-house or contract out our ideas to somebody else, but we're in control of the ideas. Broderbund doesn't do that. They really stick largely to an acquisition model on games. Not on the education, on the productivity, but on games. That makes it harder and harder for them to get good product. For every one good product you might find, you end up with dozens of stinkers. I mean, you don't necessarily release all those stinkers, but I mean, just in terms of what gets submitted to you, it's dozens and dozens of stinkers just to find one hit product. And I asked Bill McDonald about this, the CFO who later became president and chief operating officer. You know, I asked him, well, why didn't you go to an in-house model with the games just like you did with the other stuff? His answer, the way he characterized it, Even while he was CFO, he was actually in charge of game product development for a couple of years in the late 80s and early 90s. So he was actually directly in charge of this. And he said the company didn't really have anyone that was all that comfortable with games, kind of in management positions. Just the way he put it, and it's just one perspective on it, is that because they didn't feel that they had a good core competency there, they didn't really think that they could do that kind of stuff so much in-house. 
they felt like they had to keep going outside for it. They had originally hoped that they would really be split kind of evenly. One-third games, one-third productivity, one-third education. They wanted to be diversified, but the games always just lagged behind a little bit. And I think it got worse probably as the decade went on, because for a period of time in the mid-80s, they were kind of transitioning themselves into a place where they kind of could be a viable game company. The Strong Museum in Rochester, New York, which has the uh, International Center for the History of Electronic Games, they have some documents that Doug Carlston donated that are corporate documents from Broderbund. I've gone to the Strong and I've looked at those documents. It's interesting to see, especially there was a series of strategic planning documents, notes from strategic planning sessions in the mid-1980s. And it's interesting to kind of see how they're trying to change and trying to refocus themselves in order to break away from this acquisitions model and become more relevant. They do go to a producer system around 1987, where they give their project managers more responsibility for budgets, more responsibility for market positioning, more responsibility for schedules, make them more than a mere supervisor of how the project is going and put them in this middleman big picture position of the producer that Electronic Arts really pioneered. As their first internal producer, they brought in Don Daglow, who had been a producer at Electronic Arts for years. I'm sure his name has probably come up. I mean, I don't know that we've gone in depth about who he is, but we've done a couple of EA episodes. I'm sure we brought his name up when we did EA. Uh, He was also in television before that at Mattel, working on in television. So they brought in a real experienced game guy to be their internal game producer. It just so happens he doesn't stay long. He kind of gets itchy feet and decides he wants to go out and do it himself, so he's only there about a year. They brought in some of that outside expertise, but it just so happened, bad luck, it kind of walked out the door (laughs) almost as soon as it came in, and it wasn't because he disliked Broderboon. He's been asked about this. I mean, he had nothing wrong with Broderboon. He just wanted to kind of strike out on his own. Then at the end of the decade, the Carlston family aspect of it, of the company, this whole foundation, the Brotherhood, Broderboon thing, goes away because two of the three Carlstons at the company leave. Kathy Carlston, who we talked about, their adopted sister, who uh, was half Korean, half American, adopted into the family, decided that she wanted to be able to start a family and settle down. She had been in charge of educational marketing. Once they started marketing more to schools after Carmen Sandiego was uh, successful, they had a specific kind of marketing push towards educators and schools, and Kathy Carlston was heading that up. She wanted to start a family, which remaining in the company wasn't conducive to. She was ready to kind of cash out and leave, and so she left the company in 1989. Gary Carlston who was the main guy in charge of game product development, also left in 1989. He'd kind of been feuding with the VCs for a while, the venture capitalists uh, that were invested in the company. He kind of was ready to move on. It wasn't as fun for him anymore. See, Doug and Gary, as the 80s went on, kind of split product development between them. Doug did the productivity stuff, and Gary did the games and education stuff. When Gary leaves, as I said, Bill McDonnell, the CFO of the company, becomes the game development, the product development guy for games and education. But he's the CFO, 
And so he ends up doing both jobs essentially part-time for several years. He does the CFO job three days a week. He does the product development job three days a week. And yeah, I know that adds up to six days, but I think that's probably about what it was. He probably was putting in six-day weeks. He was not able, just because of the nature of the dual role, not because of his own competence, uh, because he was a competent guy, but he was not able to give that the full attention it deserved in this crucial time period. Susan Lee Marrow, who was in charge of marketing under him, who reported to him in this time period, who I spoke to, spoke to the fact that he was often not able to give product development his full attention because he's the CFO of the company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not his fault. Don leaves. Don's not there very long. I mean, he's only there a year. Don leaves. Gary leaves. Bill is kind of trying to do two different jobs at once and only spending half his time on each. So when he says they're not comfortable with the game side of thing, I, I just, you know, kind of the people that were interested in that, the people that had the expertise in that ended up leaving. And then uh, the company as a whole was kind of distracted at that point and just never got their groove going. They also started an affiliated label program, very similar to the Electronic Arts Affiliated Label Program, which was where they approached other developers that wanted to publish but didn't have the distribution network. And tied them into their distribution network. So the other company had their name on the box and they were the publisher. They assumed the risks if there were returns. It was the publisher that took the hit, all of that. But the distribution and getting on store shelves was handled by Broderboom because they were a bigger company that had a wider distribution net. We kind of talked about affiliated labels with EA. They signed some interesting names to that. Origin was one of the very first companies they signed, Origin Systems. We talked about that relationship when we talked about the Origin Systems episode. Maxis. We talked about how Will Wright had done his first game, Raid of Bungling Bay, through Rotorboond in 1984. We talked about that in the last episode. Well, after that, Will Wright kind of decided that the most fun he had when putting Raid on Bungling Bay together. I told you that it was kind of this elaborate clockwork thing because he was really into clockwork and intricacy like that. And so there were all these moving pieces. There were these big islands with lots of stuff going on. Well, he discovered that he really enjoyed creating those islands, creating those complex systems of buildings and infrastructure. And he was like, you know, there might be a game in this. Hello, SimCity. <laughs> right. So he starts working on one at the time he's calling Metropolis, but of course becomes SimCity. Publishers, including Broderboon, because he's had, he has a relationship with Broderboon, so he submits it to them as well. Publishers are not interested in the game. They don't think there's going to be a market for it because it's a sandbox. There's no objectives. There's no statistics. There's no leveling up. There's no improving. There's no advancing. There's no winning. Because when he's making the game, there aren't even the scenarios. The scenarios, which you may recall, is where there's a pre-made city and then there's going to be some disaster that happens to it and you have a goal of recovering from that disaster. The scenarios were actually added in at the last minute as an appeasement to people who thought there had to be some kind of gamey mode. So at this point, when he's creating it, there's not even these scenarios. It's just a sandbox. And in this age of Minecraft, it's, of course, very hard to believe that anyone would turn up their nose at a sandbox. But it just hadn't been done in 1985, which is when he was beginning to work on this product. It doesn't come out until 1989, but he works on it for a long time. There's no conception of computer as sandbox. And so everyone's like, well, it's not a game. You can't win. So nobody was interested. And that includes Broderboond. But Broderboond was trusting enough of Will Wright and the relationship that they had with Will Wright that they did finally say, okay, we're not going to publish this game. 
but we will distribute it for you because after he's rejected by everybody, he meets Jeff Braun at a pizza party. They form Maxis and, you know, they have a publisher now, but they're puny. There is a small concern. So they can't really do much with that. Broderboom doesn't want to publish, but at this point they sign him as an affiliated label. So they do the distribution. That's very successful for them because they share in the profits on SimCity because they're the ones that are distributing it. Maxis gets more, I think, but that was a successful game under their affiliated label program. There was an Ultima or two that came out under their affiliated label program. So obviously that's kind of successful. But their affiliated label program never becomes as big as, say, Electronic Arts or Activision does. And when I asked Doug Carlston about affiliated labels, he said that the real reason that he got involved in that is that it was a way to seek out new talent and hopefully find someone that we could maybe ultimately acquire to kind of beef up their product development capability in some of these areas like games. And they never got a relationship like that, even though Origin and Maxis and uh, Cyan, Creators of Mist, all at one point or another were affiliated labels, and they, to one degree or another, reaped some of the rewards for that. It was still an acquisition model. It's just that they were acquiring whole publishers instead of individual games. But, you know, they weren't buying the publisher outright. They were just saying, okay, you've got this game that you would like us to distribute for you. We'll do that. They were never able to then say, and now we love this so much that we're going to bring you in. You know, they never got to that point. They have these successes, but it still pales in comparison what's going on in print shop. It still pales in comparison what's going on in education. They get into more early learning stuff. They do uh, what's called the Living Book Series in the early 90s, which is basically taking children's books and bringing them to life through the magic of multimedia. They're very early on the CD-ROM revolution. The Living Book Series is a humongous hit. And again, it's an evergreen property for as long as it lasts because they get more children's book licenses and they can put more and more out in this series. Like Carmen Sandiego, like The Print Shop, It's an evergreen area. So education and productivity is really where the strength are. So they do some of these games. They have a big hit with George Mechner's follow-up to Karateka, Prince of Persia, because they've already got the relationship with him. So he continues that relationship with them when he does Prince of Persia. He's kind of the last lone wolf. I mean, that game comes out in 1989. He basically did the whole game himself. Nobody was doing that anymore. And the only reason that it came out in 1989 is that for several years, he really thought he was going to become a Hollywood screenwriter. He had a script. That was his first love. We talked about that briefly in the last episode. He had a script and he was getting interest from it from movie studios. So he was working on that at times much more than he was working on Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia is kind of this last anachronism. Yes, it ends up becoming a hit. It's not a hit right away, but as it gets ported to more systems, it ultimately becomes a hit for Broderbund. It was kind of a fluke. It was kind of the last gasp of the acquisition model of acquiring individual programs being successful. And it's kind of fluky that that even worked in 1989. And it was very specific to what Jordan Mechner personally was going through while deciding whether he wanted to be a screenwriter or a game developer. The education side, the early learning side, and the multimedia side, and the affiliated label side, all of this comes together to kind of give them their final really big game hit. And that, of course, is missed a product that they were not looking for, that they did not fund, that they never expected, 
but ended up working out very, very well for them. Though, as we're going to see in a little bit, spoiler alert, it's going to actually end up working out too well for them. And what's kind of strange about that game is it starts off as a concept dealing with these interactive cards on the Macintosh. That was sort of a precursor to clicking links in hypertext or wikis. Exactly. The Millers deserve their own kind of examination, so we won't go into huge detail on all of this, but you have these brothers, the Miller brothers. They became very enamored with this Macintosh add-on called HyperCard, which was basically a similar to a hypertextile system. It was a system where you could click on things on the screen and that would take you to other things, and then you could click and it would take you to other things, just like hypertext. It never did very much business. It was kind of a personal passion project of the guy who created it. Apple marketed it, but it never went that far. It's again, it's just like multimedia. It's like it doesn't really work till you have the Internet. (laughs) Darn you, Internet. Or the World Wide Web. Once again, to be more accurate, it doesn't work until you have the public accessing the Internet in large quantities. But it works. And these brothers, the Miller brothers, became very enamored with this. They decided that they would make an interactive children's book. Again, kind of similar in a way to what Broderbund ends up doing with the Living Book series was their initial plan. They were going to make this interactive children's book where you had the pages of the storybook, but then you could click on things and and maybe something fun would happen. But then a funny thing happened as they started doing that. They got far more engaged in the idea of clicking through all of these screens that they never got past the first page of their children's book. It stopped being a story. It stopped being, let's have a storybook where there's some interactivity and some side things. And it became just, let's explore a strange world. So you can, like, click on a manhole cover and uh, a vine will appear. And then you can click on the vine, the beanstalk, and you can climb it up to a castle in the sky. Or there may be this teacup on a table and you can click on the teacup and that takes you to a completely different world. And it's just, it's not really a game. It's experiential. It's just, we're going to put this series of spaces, worlds, encounters together, and you can just kind of explore through them. And it's all through the magic of HyperCard. And it's sort of a variation on adventure games. Sort of, but not really, because there's nothing to solve. There's nothing to collect. You're just walking through these spaces. And they called that project the Manhole. The Manhole was one of the very first CD-ROM projects. It wasn't originally on CD-ROM. It was originally on floppy disk, but then it became also one of the very earliest CD-ROM products. It wasn't a gigantic hit, but it fascinated a certain kind of person. And it fascinated a certain kind of person in the computer game industry, in the computer industry. And it really fascinated Doug Carlston. Doug Carlston saw the manhole and and the follow-up product, Cosmic Osmo, and was just blown away by these products. He really wanted to do something with the Miller Brothers and with the company they had formed, CN. Nobody else at the company really believed in this stuff, but Doug really did. And, you know, these were kind of aimed at children. The manhole and Cosmic Osmo were aimed at children. So this kind of fit in with what they were doing in early childhood and education and and all of that, early learning. It felt like that they could maybe do some kind of product there. So 
Carlston approached them and felt them out about doing something like that. Meanwhile, the Millers happened to be kind of ready at this point to do something more adult. They were publishing through Mediagenic. We talked about the manhole, I believe, when we did our Mediagenic episode. They were publishing through Mediagenic, which was Activision. And they came to Activision, Mediagenic, and they said, we'd really like to do an adult game. And the Mediagenic people basically said, "Eh, it's nice, stick to children's stuff. They kind of needed an outlet. They wanted to do something more adult, but they didn't have an outlet for it. And then the Japanese company Sunsoft came calling because Nintendo and Sony were in the process of creating this CD-ROM add-on to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System called the PlayStation, and there was going to be a need for multimedia-style games. Certainly, Manhole and Cosmic Osmo were very much that, and so Sunsoft saw this and was like, We would like you to do something for us. We'll fund something that you want to do so that we can put it out on this uh, Nintendo PlayStation that, of course, never materialized. It was funded by Sunsoft, and they were fine. They just said, do whatever you want. You want to make an adult game? Whatever. You know, just make whatever you want. We'll pay for it. They weren't interested in home computer rights at all, though. They didn't want to put it on computers. They were a console company. So then they had this completed game, or in-development game, I don't know if it was completed at this point, but they had this in-development game on the Macintosh, this missed game, and needed a computer publisher. So, you know, Doug Carlston had been in touch with them about doing other things, so then they say, Doug, we got this, how does this look? And they're like, fine, we'll publish that. And so they did. I mean, they didn't have to pay anything to develop it, they just bought the rights to put it out on the computer platforms. Of course, it became huge. Huge. And again, it became huge because it was a killer app for a new technology, in this case, the CD-ROM drive. Very much so. In uh, my household, it was almost like the CD-ROM drive and Myst were practically bundled together. It, it was hugely bundled, just like the print shop had been bundled with printers. This was bundled with multimedia PCs, very much so, and, and maybe even with CD-ROM drives, <laughs> you know, even outside of the PC. It was bundled with this new multimedia thing because it was something that was only possible on CD. It had graphics that were incredibly realistic for the time, close to to photorealistic for the time, of these worlds. And you may look at the graphics now and be, how could you believe that's photorealistic? You're looking at that on an HD monitor now. Exactly. (laughs) I'm talking, we, back in my day... (laughs) We had little 22-inch monitors, and we considered that fancy. That's right. And a lot of stuff was still 640 by 480. Right. If you so were, put it yeah. down to 640 by 480, change the color depth to something like 16 to 256, and... Right. <laughs> probably 256, but you get the idea. It's like the graphics capability back then, and you put that on an older screen monitor, it looks better because you have that fudginess. It takes away those jagged edges and other imperfections that are in the game. So it actually looks really, really good. Exactly. And of course, they cheated. There are no characters in the game other than the brothers that are trapped in the books and in the pages and you kind of get these grainy videos of them that are grainy by design but within the worlds you're exploring there's no characters and there's no actual movement or animation going on because what they did is every single perspective in that game is actually individual pictures it's not a real time moving through the world when you take a step 
loads a new image in. When you take another step, loads a new image in. There are very few objects in there in any given screen that actually move. Very few things move. A door might dissolve or rise up or rise down. But anything of major movement is slow. There's a tree at some point that's raising up and going down, and you can hear it going ka-clunk, ka-clunk, ka-clunk. And you go out there, and all it's doing is having the ka-clunk go loads a new screen, loads a new screen. And it's very slow when it's doing that. Exactly, because it's individual image files. And that's part of the reason that they could make it look so lifelike compared to other games at the time because they could put all of their rendering power, all of their processing power into just doing one snapshot at a time really, really well, instead of having to move the world, (laughs) so to speak. That, of course, was only possible with the added capacity of the CD-ROM drive, because you couldn't put all of those thousands of images on floppy disks, unless you put it on like, (laughs) you know, 50 of them or something. (laughs) Right. Please load observatory disk one. That's right. So that was kind of the first step, you know, just make something that was absolutely uh, jaw-droppingly gorgeous for its day. As Jeff said, it's hard to appreciate as much now when graphics have progressed, but comparing it to the time, I mean, it was just breathtaking. If you want a comparison now, take a look at Real Mist, which is where they just take all of the old stuff and do a lot of updates to it. There's still some of the old textures for the books and stuff in there. But you get a much better idea of how the game would look and felt like back then on a modern system. Exactly. That's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it was just the accessibility of it. They had been working in children's programs. I'm not sure how you'd classify the manhole. Like I said, it's not really a game and it's not really educational. It's experiential. They were specializing in children's experiences, so they were very cognizant of interface and ease of access. Myst would be, at the time, classified as an adventure game, but it wasn't like the adventure games at the time. Even the point-and-click adventure games of the time were built on lots of interaction with characters, lots of interaction with inventory and with objects in the environment and lots of puzzles that didn't necessarily always make logical sense. And it was about using a series of verbs, a series of actions that you had access to, whether it's the scum system where those verbs are spelled out like open, close, talk, look, etc., or it's like Sierra's icon system where you have a walk icon and you have a pickup icon and all of that. It's based on a multifaceted point-and-click interface and with interaction with lots of things and with sometimes obtuse puzzle design. Myst, they specifically wanted to create a user interface so simple that Grandma could do it, basically. I mean, that was their design. That was their philosophy. And it pretty much is that. Okay, I wonder if X does something. Click on it. Exactly. And if it does, it will do something. If not, it won't. You may not know what that something is, did missed. I never beat it as a kid because what is going on in this crazy land? <laughs> right. I just know I have to bring them red paper and blue paper. And then you have to make a choice. Give them the green paper. <laughs> they didn't want obtuse puzzles. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the puzzles may not have been challenging, but they wanted puzzles that made sense within the environment. Puzzles that you could figure out just by interacting with the environment in a logical way. 
adventure games, point-and-click adventure games, have that illogic to them where, let's say, this next puzzle requires you to have a pencil. But there's only one pencil in the entire world of this game. Never mind that you could just go down to the local pencil store and buy a pencil for 20 cents in the real world. And you'd have a pencil. No, you have to find the one person in this world that has a pencil and figure out what he needs for his pencil. It's non-intuitive based, uh, you know, on someone who's thinking in terms of the real world. Or like, you know, King's Quest V, and King's Quest V has pretty terrible puzzle design. But just an example from that I remember as a kid is there's this monster in the final castle of like the Enchantress or Wizard, who's a wizard, I guess, of the wizard that kind of pops out of a portal and runs for you and you have just a, towards you and you have a few seconds to stop him before he does. Well, the way you stop him is in the kitchen, there's some frozen peas. There's like a bag of peas. You have to pick up the bag of peas and you have to have the bag of peas. And then when he comes towards you, you have to throw the bag of peas at him and the frozen peas knock him cold. It's like, okay, there are probably a million objects in the room that you're in that weigh just as much as a bag of frozen peas that you could throw at the monster if it was the real world. I don't mean that are existing within the world of the game, just as a real world. So, of course, it can only be the frozen peas, right? Marbles. So the other thing that they wanted to do was make sure that any puzzle that they put in was environmentally based and that it was logical and rational within the environment. Everything you needed to solve it was something that you could figure out just by interacting with the environment in a logical way as you would interact with the environment if you were really there. Right. And Mist was really interesting in its design in that respect in that it did not lead you along at all. You had to think and you had to read. And I mean read. You go to the library, there are books, you will sit down and you will read them. Like school, we'll probably have to take notes. In fact, failure to take notes means that you're probably not going to figure things out because you get information from those books. Language translations, ciphers, symbols, basic overview of the different worlds that you go and visit. In order to even unlock the world that you are going to visit, you have to move the observatory tower to certain key locations in order to climb up the tower to read some sort of esoteric symbol that may tie back into the book somewhere, multiple books, <laughs> in order to figure out the puzzle. Before you do that, you got to go to every spot on the island and turn on switches so that you know where to stop the observatory to make sure that wherever you're trying to go is properly activated. Mm-hmm. And you really had a sense of accomplishment whenever you actually solved one of these puzzles. I remember finally figuring out how to get to the wooded area where you figured out how to get the combination to the safe in order to unlock it. You can get the pack of matches and you figure out how to strike the pack of matches in order to light the match. And then you put it in the boiler and then that lets the little tree with the book in it go up and down. That felt like a major accomplishment figuring all of that out because that was pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. They called it an adventure game in its time because that was the touchstone. That's what it was most similar to. But it was much closer to what we would call a walking simulator today more sophisticated puzzles than some of our walking simulators have today, but it's closer to that aesthetic. It's just that they didn't have that name back then. They didn't have that concept back then. Right. Similar to Gone Home or the Stanley Parable. These things are much more modern games, but they are very much more in the vein of how Myst and its sequels were. 
Myth is just scene by scene by scene by scene. Mm-hmm. Modern re-engineering of the original game actually allows you to go around very much like you would in these other games where you can look in a full 3D right. world right. and move smoothly between bots and sort of see where you are. But kind of what helped with the whole you're locked to a perspective thing is that you can use tricks in order to draw the eye to things that are important. You may have heard of in photography, you had the law of third, three horizontal lines, three vertical lines, and there's sort of like key points in it. And things are sort of laid out in a nice way so that your eye gets drawn to those in order to go, oh, this is important. This is something I need to be looking at. I don't need to see what's on the ceiling. (laughs) I don't need to see what's on the floor. I don't need to see what's around the corner over there behind the television. I can't click over there. That's not important. It's actually harder to play Myst if you have full free roaming on in the newer game <laughs> right. than it is if you have it locked to how the game was originally designed with the forced perspective. Mm-hmm. Arguably, you could say that that is an advantage to that kind of game as opposed to the full free roaming. Also, it probably depends on how you're doing this whole story puzzle transition thing. With stuff like the Stanley Parable and Gone Home, yeah, you have puzzles there, but I would say that those puzzles were not anywhere near as sophisticated no. or complex as what you had in Myth. No, certainly not. Way, way back then. And the only reason you could have that is because of that forced perspective, forcing that kind of thinking. Absolutely. It's somewhere in between a classic adventure game and kind of what we would call a walking simulator today. It's, it's somewhere in the middle of that. You know, just because it was so beautiful and so accessible, it became a real killer app for CD-ROM. It was credited with spurring sales of CD-ROMs. It was considered a big part of the uptake of multimedia PCs in that time period, and it sold 6 million copies, which was by far the best-selling computer game of all time until The Sims started eclipsing it in the late 90s. We've talked about this before. I mean, on computer platforms, due to a combination of factors, including uh, accessibility, including piracy and all this other stuff, you were a hit at 100,000. You were a big hit at 250,000, 500,000. You were over the moon. By this time, the market's grown a little more. So, you know, one million is starting to be in the realm of possibility. But six million, it's like, whoa, (laughs) where'd that come from? (laughs) Hello, money. And a lot of that was bundling. People say that Myst is the most widely sold game that nobody ever played. Lots of people played Myst, obviously, but a lot of those copies were just bundled with CD-ROMs and actually really did just gather dust. Not everybody that had a copy of Myst actually played it. Or you had a problem where, yes, my cup holder and my PC died and <laughs> I can't play Myst anymore. You don't do that. Yeah. Let me go buy you a new CD-ROM. Oh, great. I got a new copy of Myst. Um, okay. Right. So... It wasn't quite as widely played as the 6 million copies implies, but it was widely played, obviously. And it was a killer app for CD-ROM. And it, for a brief period of time, became another kind of evergreen product category for Broderboond. Games are never evergreen in the same way that productivity and education are. But it was so big and sold for so long, and its sequels, its original sequels, you know, Riven and whatnot, were so anticipated that at least for a few years, they knew they had a product that they could milk. You know, it was never a product they owned. It was 
an affiliated label. Cyan was an affiliated label of Broderbund. Broderbund wasn't getting the direct 100% profits from this thing or even 50% profit from it. It's more like we're distributing it for you at best, maybe somewhere in the 10 to 20% range. Yeah, and I think for the first one, it might have been a little better. They may have published the first one. I know their name was on the box, but even if they published the first one, after that, it was an affiliate system. And so, you know, it's, it's as you said, you know, they weren't getting everything for that. So you can kind of see that games just lagged behind because they never got the in-house talent together to make games a focus. A big part of that was just because the people at the company were not really game people. Even though Doug created some games at the start of the company, as we'll recall, he was far more interested in the productivity stuff later on, by the time uh, Bill McDonald was there, for instance, than he was in the game stuff. And, and that was kind of reflected in the product line. You mentioned that Myst became a problem for Brotobund because it was so successful. Yes, it did. And to understand this, and this this goes straight to the downfall of the company, which is kind of our last big topic to touch upon here, we have to go back a little before that. But yeah, we're going to tie that in right now. Broderbund was always kind of odd in the way it was funded. There was a period of time when they thought that they might get into the cartridge business. The cartridge business in the early 1980s, when we're talking about, is, is not just the Atari, VCS, or the ColecoVision. It's not just the console side. There was that brief period of time when home computers, like the VIC-20, like the Commodore 64, like the Atari 8-bits, were also cartridge-driven, or at least cartridge was an option. C64 never became a big cartridge system. It became more of a big disk drive system, but there was a cartridge option. I have a game that's a cartridge for the Commodore 64 somewhere in this house. In 1982, they took some venture money to get into that cartridge business because, as we've talked many times before, the overhead for getting into cartridges is much, much bigger than the overhead of getting into floppy disk or cassette-based games. They took some venture money, but they didn't take a lot They only gave up 20% of the company. Oftentimes, VCs to invest in a company want to take 50% or more because they want to have some say-so in how their investment plays out. So oftentimes, even if no one venture capitalist takes that much of the company, all the VCs between them usually end up owning the majority of your company. The founders end up owning a smaller slice of the company. By the time Broderbund was taking funding, they were already successful. They were already established. Broderbund was profitable for essentially its entire life until the very end. Until the very end, they were always profitable. They were always bringing in a lot of money and they were always cash rich. So they never really had money problems, which meant that when they went for investment, they didn't always go for it in the traditional way. So they took venture funding, but they only gave away 20% of the company to get it. They didn't need that much. So they had the VCs in and the VCs eventually are going to want to cash out. They're eventually going to want to go public because that's the whole point of venture capital. You invest in a bunch of companies. Some of those companies will fail and you'll lose your investment. But the companies that succeed will go public and their IPOs will make you lots of money. And then with that money, you can pay back the people that invest in your venture fund and also give them a profit. And that's how you make money in venture financing. Broderbund never really wanted to go public. The Carlstons never really wanted to go public. But because they did take that VC money once upon a time, they knew that eventually they were going to have to go public. So they kind of almost went public in 1987. 
they put an IPO together and were all ready to go. And then you had the SNL crisis and you had the big stock market collapse that happened that year. And so they didn't end up going public, which was fine. They didn't need the money. The VCs invested in 1982. VC funds tend to last about 10 years at the maximum. So by 1991, they kind of needed to go public to pay back the VCs. Plus, in the meantime, they'd ended up being invested in by, of all things, Jostens, the school ring and school memorabilia company. Those people. Yeah, it's kind of a weird episode. When Bill's talking about it, the way he, he figures it happened is Broderbund was in schools because after Carmen Sandio was big, they made that big push into schools. Jostens was in schools, school memorabilia, school rings, etc., and Jostens was looking to diversify. And because they were all in schools, even though Broderbund was in software, Jostens saw some synergy there. So they made an investment with the idea that if they liked what they saw, if they liked what they invested in, that they might buy the whole company at some point. Well, Jostens pretty quickly realized that there really isn't that much synergy between a school ring company and a computer software company. So they backed off on that pretty quick in terms of acquiring the whole company. But then they needed to cash out, too, because they've made this investment. So by 1991, between Jostens and the VCs, they kind of had to go public. And so they did, just so that the VCs could cash out. But the interesting thing is, they didn't offer the whole company. The Carlston still retained, or Doug, I'm in management, I don't know who all was still invested in it, still maintain the majority of the company. They didn't offer the full company publicly. They basically just let the VCs and Jostens cash out their shares of the company. And that was the portion of the company that went public. Because again, they didn't need the money from an IPO. They kind of took these business steps that businesses are supposed to take, but they didn't really need them because they were always so profitable with these evergreen titles. But now they're a public company. And as the 90s are dawning, it's pretty clear that they're going to need to consolidate with other companies in order to remain large enough to stay in business. We've talked before about how the 90s was a big period of consolidation. You were either acquiring or you were acquired or you went away. And that's basically what the story of the 90s in computer software was, particularly computer game software. At this point, Doug Carlston's not running the company anymore, really. He never liked being the CEO. He was still the CEO on paper. But in 1987, he brought in a guy named Ed Auer, who had a background in finance and who had run a software division at CBS. He became the new president and COO of the company and essentially served a lot of the CEO function as well. Doug Carlston enjoyed strategic planning, long-term planning, and so he participated in that, which is a CEO role. He continued to manage the productivity software stuff because he enjoyed that. But he stepped back from most of the management responsibilities and handed them over to Ed Auer. They begin looking for opportunities to become larger during this period. And for one reason or another, none of them really work out. The first attempt they make is actually 1991, I think shortly before they went public, where they almost merged with Sierra. It would have been a somewhat good fit in terms of product lines because Sierra was much stronger in games and Broderbund was much stronger in productivity and education. But both companies, we talked about this in the Sierra episode, Ken Williams was also someone that wanted to be dominant in all areas. He didn't want to just be a game company. Because their product lines really complemented each other and both CEOs were people that wanted to be on top in multiple categories, it kind of made sense from that perspective. And so they came up with this really weird, and the way Bill tells it, 
I don't know exactly when they started talking, Doug and Ken Williams, but the way Bill tells it, they basically, you know, they probably just got together after a trade show one day and were just like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Ha 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 ha. And it's like, well, you know, maybe it would be great if we did this. It kind of was an ad hoc thing, but they had a whole structure in place. They were going to merge the companies and Ken Williams and Doug Carlston were going to rotate CEO and president responsibilities. Like Ken Williams was going to be the CEO in the first year, Doug Carlston, the president, and they were going to flop and they were going to do all this. Bill McDonald was going to be the uh, CFO of the combined company and actually move out to Oakhurst, move out to where Sierra Online was in the hills because they had recently lost their CFO. They kind of figured out what the structure was going to be and they were kind of ready to do the deal. And then they just kind of got cold feet. I don't know exactly, but I think it was a personality kind of thing. We talked about how the Carlstons are these nice, decent people, and we talked about how Ken Williams is a very ambitious person, very much a shark. And I think Doug Carlston just kind of got uneasy at the whole idea of running a company in tandem with Ken Williams. I think they decided that that just wasn't going to be a good thing. Too much of a personality conflict. Yeah, so they ended up calling it off. It's like, well, maybe we kind of rushed into this. By 1994, it was very clear that companies were going to need to get larger to remain viable in this business. We talked about this before. I mean, it basically comes down to shelf space. As the 90s wore on and as computers became more mainstream because of multimedia, because of the Internet, World Wide Web, as computers got mainstream and more and more people were buying computers, computer software sales in the big centers where computer software sales were moving out of specialized retailers like Babbage's or Egghead, and we're moving more into mainstream retailers like your Walmarts and your Targets and whatnot. And not the computer stores went away, but there were bigger, big box retailers that were taking an interest in computer software. Competition for shelf space in a big retailer is far more intense because since it's not a specialty retailer, it's not going to carry everything. It's only going to carry a sampling of the best stuff that it thinks it can make money on. In order to get shelf space for your full range of products, you basically have to have a lot of clout by having a lot of successful products so you can say, we won't give you our big hit products if you don't also take some of our other products. The more product you have and the bigger the product you have, the more clout you have with this more mass market kind of retailer. So if you're a small guy that just has one or two mid-range hits that you're bread and butter, that might have worked back in the day when you were just selling down at the bite shop. That's not going to get you into Walmart. Affiliated label programs help with that a little bit. I mean, we talked about that's part of the reason why affiliated labels sprang up is so that small publishers could take advantage of the distribution cloud of larger publishers. But the affiliated label thing is becoming less and less important at this point because with game development becoming bigger and more expensive, more and more stuff is going in-house. And so publishers, even though they have affiliated label programs, they're not doing as much with them. So long story short, too late. In order for a publisher to remain viable in this new age of mass market computer acceptance, they need to be big enough to have clout with retailers. And that means consolidation. This is clear to Broderboon by the middle of the decade. They still have their product lines that are doing very well, but they know that they're reliant primarily on just a few evergreen properties. And while those are great properties, it would be nice if they could have some other hits too, you know, to fill out the catalog and make them... A bit more diversity. Exactly. They start talking with Electronic Arts. The Electronic Arts Broderboon merger very nearly happened, and it's something that both companies really, really wanted, and it would have been kind of perfect. Now, I'm just talking from a business perspective. We've talked about EA and how they have a mixed record of actually successfully integrating companies and 
people talk about how they messed up Origin and they messed up Bullfrog and this and that. So, you know, the nuts and bolts of would the companies work together, I don't know. But from a business perspective, it just made so much sense. EA was the number one guy in games. They were big, big, big in games. They had several franchises, the sports franchises and whatnot that they could rely on in games. They were huge. But the game market is a volatile market. It's hard to predict what your quarters are going to look like because game development is hard and titles slip. And then you have gaps in your product line and it's just very unpredictable. And the stock market hates unpredictability. So if you're a public company, it's better to have a more stable lineup of product. So your stock prices are just going up, down, up, down, up, down every time big game misses a chip date. Broderbund has those evergreen products. Print shop is old reliable. You know that you can put out this many print shop products in a year or whatever. Carmen San Diego, even though it's kind of a game, it's still kind of reliable. They have these evergreen franchises, and they're big in education and productivity where EA is not big. EA has games, which they don't, and has lots of money coming in from that. Broderbund has these other product categories, but they also add stability to the release schedule because they make the kind of products that you don't worry so much about being laid on as you do with games. So everybody was thrilled to do this deal. This deal was all ready to go. They had everything in place. And then Mist happened. But Mist is good. Mist is really good. Mist is super successful. And because Mist is super successful, it drives up the Broderboon stock price. Oh, right. They're public. That's right. They've gone public at this point. So they had set a valuation. It was going to be a stock swap. They weren't acquiring them for cash. It was a stock swap. So they had set what the valuation of the two companies were going to be. And they had set up how much EA stock Broderbund people would get for their stock and everything else. It's the valuation of the deal. That's what you do when you have a stock swap. But then because of Miss, the Broderbund stock kept going up and up and up. Suddenly in the stock swap, as they're swapping stock between themselves, the valuation doesn't work anymore because Broderbund stock is too valuable. So the buying power is less. You know, when you're doing the stock swap, the the amount of Broderboon stock that EA people have to give up EA stock for, it's suddenly all out of whack. They, you have to give up more EA stock in order to buy off the same amount of Broderboon stock because of the valuation increase, which means that it completely screws up the ownership ratios over what percentage of the new company each set of shareholders is supposed to uh, end up with. And you can't just change it around. You can't just change it around for Broderboon people. It's like, why don't you just use the old valuation, even though Broderboon stock is worth so much more now? Well, then Broderboon shareholders are getting gypped because their stock's worth more. So the shareholders are never going to approve a deal where they have a stock that's really valuable and they have to end up trading it for way less value than it's worth. That would just be nuts. But the EA shareholders aren't going to agree to a deal where suddenly they have to give up way more of their stock in order to buy off the Broderboon people and therefore dilute their control of the company. It's a disaster. It's entirely a disaster on paper, economics, but it's an utter disaster. So even though both sides want the deal, it just doesn't work anymore because of what happened to the Broderboon stock. The reason the Broderboon stock went up and up and up was because of mist. A time when success works against you. Absolutely. It killed the company. Obviously, if they had merged with EA, the company would have gone away, so to speak, but it would become part of EA. Some of the studios would have stayed open. Some of the people would have stayed employed. I mean, it wouldn't have meant the end of everything they were doing, 
But because that deal didn't go through, it killed the company. But they have this really valuable stock. How do you kill a company when I have 6 million copies of Mist floating out there and stock that's worth some large amount of money? Yeah, but, you know, market valuation comes and goes. It's kind of a wrong place, right time kind of situation. Bill McDonough becomes uh, president and COO right in the middle of this process, right in the middle of this merger process in 1994. Ed Auer retires. Bill knows now that the A deal's off, they need to expand the company. They need to become an acquirer to stop themselves from being acquired. So that's what he starts to do. He beefs up their international presence because they don't really have big international sales. So they try to beef up international. They buy a few small companies in kind of the productivity area. They buy Family Tree Maker, for instance, which is a genealogy software. They buy a couple other small things. They found a new entertainment division to try to beef up their acquisition of games again, though they're never very successful with that. And they set their sights on the learning company, another edutainment company. Broderbund is more focused on early childhood entertainment with some learning component to it, kind of freeform learning stuff. Carmen Sandiego's a game. It's a game where you learn about geography, but it's a game first and foremost. It's not structured around a lesson. Living books obviously helps with reading. It's getting children interested in books, but it's not curricular. It's not This is the reading level you should read at at second grade, and these exercises will help you get to a second grade reading level. It's not curricular. Learning Company is also doing educational games, just like Broderbund is, but it's more the curricular kind of stuff. It's like, here's a math game where you have to do addition really fast. Structured curricular education. So it's a good fit. It's because they're both in a similar field, but they're in different parts of that field. The learning company is kind of the next step that they're going to take to uh, try to get bigger. And the deal is basically done. And then a company called SoftKey swoops in and does a hostile takeover of the learning company. SoftKey is kind of a budget software company. And in this period of consolidation, they decided to become a big major player everywhere. They had a lot of money, but what they were basically looking to do is they were going to buy up a lot of companies strip them down, and then sell the whole package on to someone else to make a whole bunch of money is essentially what it came down to. So they purchased Mindscape, which was a somewhat significant computer game and console game publisher in the mid-1990s. And they purchased The Learning Company, which was big in the education. And they purchased some other things and created this big conglomerate. Then they decided, once they had that, that they were going to acquire Broderboon as kind of the final piece of this puzzle. So what they did, at least according to Doug Carlston, is they started offering competing products to Broderboon products, clone products. They did their own version of the print shop, their own version of this, own version of that, that they sold for cheaper. They weren't necessarily as good of products, but they sold them for cheaper and then offered very generous rebates on them. And so they basically started pushing Broderboon out of the market. And as Broderboon was getting pushed out of the market... Their finances started not doing as well, and then their stock started to go down. So it created this whole snowball effect that basically started running Broderbund into the ground. And you see, Broderbund was in a strange situation because I told you they never had cash problems. Suddenly, the stock was getting low, but they had huge cash reserves. Even with the finances not doing as well, even with having a couple of losses, they still had huge cash reserves. 
So they ended up in a situation where they could very realistically be bought with their own money because the stock got so low that a company could say, because they had like $400 million in the bank or something. What a company could do is be like, okay, we're going to buy all of the stock in this company. We're going to do a hostile takeover. And let's say all the stock in the company combined is worth $350 million. Well, they can get a loan from a bank for $350 million to buy all the stock in the company and then raid the cash reserves of the company to pay back the loan. That's what happens when you are a cash-rich company whose stock collapses. You can end up having your own money being used to acquire you. Wow. And Broderbund was kind of in this situation. Their response to it was kind of sluggish. It happened kind of right at a transition period. Bill McDonald decided that he was getting burned out and didn't really want to run the company anymore as president and COO. Doug Carlston was still the titular CEO. Like I said, he hadn't really been acting as the CEO for a long time. So Bill basically went to Doug. You know, I got this from Bill. I talked to him and he said, I'm burned out. I'm going to leave the company. In terms of a succession plan, you're either going to have to take on the CEO responsibilities for real, or we're going to have to find an outside guy to be the president and CEO. Doug Carlston chose the latter option. So Doug Carlston decided that he would step down as CEO. He stayed chairman of the board. He didn't leave the company, but he stepped down as CEO. And he and Bill together did a search, and they hired a guy out of Connecticut named Joe Durrett who was stronger in marketing, which was an area that Broderbund had always been kind of weak in. They brought him in to be the new CEO of the company, but they're doing a CEO transition at the exact same time that they're kind of under threat by this external threat of SoftKey slash the learning company, because after SoftKey acquires the learning company, they rename themselves the learning company. Kind of this external threat, and they've got kind of a new, untested CEO kind of familiarizing himself with the company. At the same time, they're trying to fight off an external threat, and it's just too much. They just decide that at this point, they should basically just sell to the learning company, because if they don't sell to the learning company, the learning company will just do a hostile takeover and buy them with their own money anyway. (laughs) They might as well lose and keep your money. So they end up selling to the learning company in 1998. Basically, it's very sad what happens. I don't know if this was always the plan. I mean, I've not spoken to anyone at SoftKey. Who knows? I don't know if this was always the plan or if it just became the plan later after they acquired all these companies. But they decided what they really needed to do is sell the whole bundle to someone else. Once they had all of these companies that they had bought, it turned out that most of these companies weren't doing that great. And so they ended up in a situation where they were going to be losing a lot of money, is my understanding of it. So what they did is they basically laid everybody off to make the company look more attractive, to make it look like it was more profitable because they got rid of all the overhead. Look at how much money we're bringing in and look at how little overhead we have. Except they got that overhead by letting most of the staff at all of these companies go. They eliminated the overhead by eliminating the people. Yeah, so you don't have anyone who knows how to make print shop iterate it and continue on so it's not really a evergreen product anymore because the people who need to iterate and make it evergreen don't work there anymore. They basically eliminate Broderbund not too long after they buy it. I mean, the products remain, the label remains, they're still releasing stuff as Broderbund, but like the people, the offices, everything, they just kind of, they basically get rid of all of that. They do that across all of their companies and then they sucker Mattel into buying the whole thing. Mattel buys it for like $3.9 billion. They buy the learning company, which is not just Broderbund. They bought a lot of companies, this whole big thing. 
they buy for $3.9 billion. With a B. And they end up with projected losses of $3.4 billion on the whole deal. It's a disaster because they're buying these companies, but there's really not a company anymore. It's just a bunch of brands and whatnot because they've gotten rid of all the people. So it starts hemorrhaging money immediately. I don't know all the details of why this went bad financially. So some of what I say may be slightly inaccurate, but it's close enough. The point is they bought it for $3.9 billion and they lost $3.4 billion on it. The CEO of Mattel is forced to resign over the purchase. They didn't do their due diligence. They didn't look closely enough at what they were buying to see that the numbers on the balance sheet were not as good as they looked because of the state that the company was in that they were buying with all the people gone and and everything else, all the infrastructure gone. So they ended up selling it for $1, you know, it was a token sale to a company called Gore's Technology Group. And then Gore's Technology kind of broke up the various portions of the company, the entertainment stuff, the education stuff, the productivity stuff, kind of broke it up into these little packages and then sold portions of the company along to other interested parties. Gores was kind of a turnaround artist. They bought it for a dollar, but you know they also assumed all the debt of the company. They were assuming debt. That's why they could get it so cheaply. And then to pay off that debt, they sold off the assets piecemeal to make a profit. They were flipping the company, essentially. The Broderboon label, I think, even still exists today. It does. I looked it up. Yeah. The Broderboon label still exists today, but it's owned by a completely different company. It is not Broderboon. Broderboon, as we know it, ceases to exist in 1998 when they're bought by the learning company, which then flips it all around to Mattel, which flips it to Gores, and then which breaks it all up. Broderboon's gone. The people are gone. No one that was with the company is associated with the company anymore. It's just a label because there's still power to that label because of all the great things they did in the 1980s and 90s. But it's just a label. And it's really just because they couldn't get big enough. They thought they had the deal that would keep them going with electronic arts. And then it fell through for stupid reasons, but necessary reasons. They couldn't do the deal with what happened with the stock. You have a fiduciary duty to shareholders, and it would have breached the fiduciary duty to shareholders to do that to their stock. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that because you had such a great, phenomenal success that that ultimately leads to the downfall of your company because you can't grow fast enough. And then you're so powerful that someone else goes, you know, I'm going to take you down. Right. And then they just do some sort of horrible, manipulative thing that you wish would be illegal, but isn't. And you're taken out that way. And then what was arguably a really interesting company with the combination of their evergreen product of desktop publishing and video games that if they was able to survive that turmoil of the 90s, I think would still be coming out with occasional really fascinating games that would be pretty unique in the entire ecosystem. Yeah, I think so. And they knew they had to grow. I mean, they didn't get caught by surprise. They thought they had the deal that would make them safe with EA. And then by the time that fell through, you're in 1994 and it's just too late. I mean, they tried. They tried to expand after that. But by then, they were a medium-sized fish that was swimming in an ocean full of big fish. They could not grow fast enough as an independent company, to stave off the big fish, and so they were ultimately wiped out. The Battle for Olympus was lost. For those who don't know, Battle for Olympus was an NES game that Boom put out. (laughs) Yes, Japanese, of course, that they brought over, as most of their console product was, but yes. 
Oh, well. Like Olympus, it fell. So, with the sad and fairly rapid loss of Brodo Boond, what shall we delve into our topic next time? Well, I think we've done enough company history for a while again. We always seem to come back to company history, mostly because I find that stuff so fascinating. That's a lot of what I'm researching. One thing we haven't done in a while is really look at a genre and kind of pick apart what makes a particular genre tick. There's a unique genre in the United Kingdom that we talked about in our 8-bit software episode. Of course, that was about all software, so we didn't dwell on it. Called the Arcade Adventure. It's not necessarily the best defined category, but it's basically the combination of action and item collection or light puzzle solving that you would see on a console in something like The Legend of Zelda, but which manifested on home computers instead in the United Kingdom just because the ecosystem was very different there, as we discussed in our 8-bit software episode. I think it would be uh, interesting to kind of do a deeper dive on the arcade adventure, something that certainly our, our UK and our European listeners will know very well, but something that may be less familiar to our American listeners and kind of walk through how the genre kind of developed and grew and how it influenced the design of video games more generally after the British kind of 8-bit and 16-bit computer market joined the international video game ecosystem later in the 1990s. All right, we will go adventuring into the arcades next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. 